0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to K-pop. In the conversation on criminal justice reform, more attention is being paid to how the police do their jobs. Professor Andrew Ferguson, author of The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race, and the Future of Law Enforcement, walks me through the new tools police are using to combat crime, such as predictive policing, and their downsides right now. Professor Ferguson, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, as I said, the, the name of your book is The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race, and the Future of Law Enforcement. So, I got to start at the very, very beginning. Define
1: big data. So big data is the, is the reality that we are seeing volumes of data, velocities of data, just different kinds of data changing how police do their jobs, how they figure out what patrols they go on, who they target, uh, and many ways changing how they surveil citizens. Um, Big data is obviously not uh, exclusive to policing. We see it in the consumer space, right? We know that uh, Amazon's collecting everything we buy and Google is collecting everything uh, we search for. And this is sort of this rise of data-driven everything, uh, which we've seen a bit of in the policing uh, context and we've seen a lot of in the consumer space uh, where we are being tracked and we are being seen and viewed and visualized and sold and repackaged uh, based on the data trails we leave behind. I was about to ask, what exactly are police departments, uh, the data, what exactly are they collecting? So it depends on which uh, type of technology you're talking about. So there's a lot of place-based predictive policing where the the data they're collecting is crime data, right? All the the information that they have of particular crimes in particular places. Uh, There's person-based predictive policing where they're actually collecting information about people, about people they consider at risk. Individuals, they think, will be most likely to commit an act of violence or be victims of violence. And then there's a ton of surveillance data, right? We have uh, cameras, police body cams, video cameras uh, in planes, on fixed cameras, you know, in Cities, you know, New York, New York City, and Manhattan has 9,000 linked surveillance cameras, all linked back to the central command center, where they can watch you go from place to place, uh, block to block. Um, these are all forms of new. Uh, surveillance technologies that all at their core have a data collection, data-driven focus. And we're starting to see police departments change what they do because of this new information and this new ability to sort of use this information uh, in new ways. Well, here's what's interesting. So you mentioned cameras, which is really,
0: to my mind, the old-school way of of surveillance. And at least with cameras— I'm reasonably assured that those cameras are owned by the police or the city government or maybe even the federal government. But when it comes to this data that's being collected now by law enforcement agencies, how is that data being collected
1: and who how is it being collected and who owns it? It's a great question but who owns it, uh, because it's still an open question. So, there are a couple things. So, one, some of the data can be purchased. Police can buy the same data that a data broker could buy if they wanted to do it. From? Uh, data brokers who are collecting information about each one of us to sort of sell it to uh, those, you know, that's how you get catalogs in the mail. That's how you get those prompts when you uh, Google, you know, a vacation in Ireland, and for next month, you get the same advertisement for the vacation in Ireland or whatever. Or later day. that afternoon, right. if you
0: even search right. it, it even, if you,
1: even if you've gone to Ireland, you still somehow get, <laughs> get the. Uh, the, uh, the, but those that's what data brokers do, that they're collecting information about each one of us in, in ways. So police can, if they choose, uh, to purchase it, but they're also developing their own uh, systems to collect it. So if they think that there are individuals in their society who are the people who are driving crime, people who are the people who are the perpetrators of crime, they're collecting information. And I don't mean just collecting information about the things you would think in terms of have they been arrested, have they been contacted, have they been convicted, but also what are they doing on social media? Who are they tweeting with? Who, What YouTube videos are they with? Right, And they're sort of building dossiers of individuals that they believe are most at risk in order to track them and then sort of track some of the groups who are involved. Uh, there's been news uh, recently out of New York as a whole to-do about the gang database that the uh, uh, the NYPD is building of people they believe are the crime drivers in society. And again, it's this idea of datifying and quantifying and controlling uh, communities based on the information they collect. So this information
0: is being is being collected and it's not as if you've got, you know, officer Smith sitting at a computer and inputting inputting all sorts of all sorts of data. The technology is such that it,
1: it's almost automatic because of algorithms, right? Well, well, it's too it depends on where you are. So in LAPD, in Los Angeles. Actually, Officer Smith is doing that. Mm -hmm. In fact, LAPD has partnered with Palantir, the same company that brought you the ability to track terrorists across the globe, is now starting to track uh, gang members and sort of criminal associates across uh, greater LA. And what they're doing in partnership is having Officer Smith and all of Officer Smith's colleagues go out into the community to find the quote unquote chronic offenders, individuals that they've already labeled as the people they believe are the most uh, at risk for violence or or recidivism. And Officer Smith and his uh, colleagues are supposed to go out and find these quote-unquote chronic offenders. see who they are, and then they filled out these field interview cards, and these field interview cards have information about who are they with, where are they, what kind of car they're driving, you know, who's their girlfriend at the time, what tattoos do they have, and all that information gets then fed back into, just as you're saying, typed into Palantir's growing social network analysis system so that detectives, if they want to find out how these groups are connected, who's associated with who, if a crime goes down, who might be the likely suspects, can actually use this growing database built by the police and can controlled by police and palantir to find clues and connect license plates, connect phone numbers, connect you know gang associates in particular ways that they couldn't do before. And so this is very much a police-driven, police-focused, police-controlled data collection mechanism in order to, in their ideas, improve investigation. Like, they can figure out where are the patterns of crime in a society, who's doing what, who's beefing with whom, and then if something goes down, they can then go there and use this information that they've collected as a police department uh, to investigate. Okay,
0: so that still, to me, sounds sounds different in that there's some gumshoe work. Officer Smith goes out, does the interviewing, comes back, inputs the data, works with this other company. That sounds different than, um, I guess, you tell me, predictive policing, where there's this where there are some police departments using an algorithm that then tells them where they should deploy their resources.
1: So it's it's twofold. So it is gumshoe, right, in the sense of it's somewhat old school and somewhat new uh, future. Uh, But it's the same thing with the surveillance cameras. The difference here is the information is being aggregated in different ways. So, for example, it's true that detectives have always gone on and tried to figure out who's with whom and try to understand their communities. But now it's all being inputted into a larger data system that you can literally search for a fragment of a license plate or a tattoo or a nickname or whatever it would be. Same thing with the cameras that you brought up earlier, the surveillance cameras. We've always had surveillance cameras, but we haven't had network surveillance cameras. The domain awareness system in Manhattan, the one I was referencing, before has 9,000 link cameras, where which is the the, the feeds are saved for a month. That you can literally go back and find all the people wearing Yankees hats or giant shirts. You can go find the people at the particular time, location, and place, and track these people in different ways. All the cars that come through that those camera systems are recorded through automated license plate readers. So there's this aggregation of the traditional gumshoe slash surveillance cameras that's changing with the ability to sort of use new uh, data sources and and sort of control all this this larger information and that's separate just to the point view, from the then being able to use that information to then predict right so you might be able to collect and figure out that these individuals are uh, more likely to be involved in crime. And so the prediction element is, like, we're going to go then uh, talk to these individuals. We think that, that these people are going to be likely to be a crime, so we're going to knock on their door. In Chicago, that's what they're doing. They have an algorithmically listed, you know, heat list, that's what they call it, the strategic subjects list, of individuals who they think are most likely to be involved in violence. And literally, if you make the top of this list, you 've got to knock on the door by a Chicago detective saying... Sir, it's usually a young man, sir, we got your uh, information here and we believe that you are at risk for violence and we're watching you. It might be a time to, you know, turn your life around and change what you're doing here. Uh, And if you don't, we're watching you. We're going to bring down the hammer hard. And so that's the difference. Like we're taking what we've always, what police have always done, but we're transforming it with this new ability to use uh, data collection and data sources. And all this is being done in different places in different ways.
0: Right. Okay. So there's there's a lot there. So the idea that there are these network cameras and you can go and search for who's got on Yankees hats and look at partial license plates, how is that not in violation of the Fourth
1: Amendment against search, unlawful search and seizure? So, at this current state of the Fourth Amendment, there is very limited protection of privacy in public. Um, there's pr- a potential concern that, in United States v. Jones, the Supreme Court recognized that sort of aggregated, long-term surveillance for certain kinds of crimes might be considered a search, and thus a viol- then, without a warrant, a violation of the, the Fourth Amendment. But as of now, mostly when we are in public. Uh, the court hasn't said we have any real protection. And so it really doesn't become a Fourth Amendment concern. Uh, maybe it should. Maybe we could uh, change it either through legislation or other purposes. But the Supreme Court certainly hasn't weighed into it. And I'm not sure which way they would go when they could weigh into it.
0: I mean, at this point, when are we not in public, especially with network cameras, with social media? I mean, we're all, we're always out in the open, No. Except in our homes or, or in other places that are protected, right? Well, wait, but even but even there, where you've got like Google Home or Alexa or Siri. And they're all listening, even when you don't think they are. So isn't that still, aren't you kind of in public?
1: And, and that's really you know, part of the point of the book, and part of the point of the, this conversation is that our Fourth Amendment and our law was created in a small data age. It really wasn't created in a world of big data, where the rules and protections that we kind of assume in that small data age may not protect us in this world of aggregated information. And we, as a community, as a culture, need to start actually asking those questions about, maybe we do need an overlay of protection and privacy, because, you know, add to the things you just said about being actually out in public, but you know, we'll be driving our you know smart cars, leaving our smart homes with Fitbits on our our, our wrists, giving our heartbeat and, our, and 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 where we are in in every place. And those kinds of trails are wonderful investigative tools, right? It used to be if you were a police officer, you had to sit in like you know a hot car, drink cold coffee, and watch where your suspect went. Now you can just follow them around through the data trails, right? We we are being tracked by our cell phones and everything else, and all of this is changing policing.
0: Right. I was going to say contrails of data from the moment you even from the moment you wake up, you don't even have to leave your have to leave your house. OK, there are a, a, a bunch of, of dangling strings here. And I want to go back to um, one, um, the algorithms. And I keep bringing this up over and over and over again. I brought it up when I interviewed you on WNYC. I bring it up on, on every podcast where it's relevant, and that's the, the the words of the Knight Foundation president, Alberto Ibargüen, when he blew my mind by saying, algorithms have parents. So if you have police departments that are depending on algorithms to help them in their policing, how can we trust either the police departments or the companies that are, rely- that are relying or creating the algorithms
1: that end up, in some instances, targeting people. We shouldn't. We shouldn't trust them. In fact, we should be asking these questions over and over again because what we've seen uh, in the rollout in these algorithms is that many times they haven't even asked the hard questions themselves. They haven't always protected against issues of racial bias and sort of some of the implicit and explicit bias that come into these systems. And they've designed the systems in many ways with like huge glaring errors. Like just as an example, in the chronic offender list in LAPD, the one we were talking about, What the LAPD officers, Officer Smith, is supposed to do is go find the people with the highest numbers. And one way you can get a higher number is police contacts. So they do an algorithm. It's not even an algorithm, it's basically basic math. You get a couple points if you're in a gang, a couple points if you have convictions or arrest or whatever it is. But you get an extra point if you've been contacted from police. And so you get a higher score. But you can imagine if you have a higher score and police go talk to you, you can get a higher score. So the next right. version is going to go is going to be, well, who has a higher score? And so you create this self-fulfilling prophecy of who has a higher score. And that's just an obvious error. Like, you shouldn't build the system this way. And I think maybe they, they may have realized that over time. Um, but that is people not asking the questions and trusting too much. And I don't think we should be trusting at this time.
0: And, the, and another thing, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and I think this is in the, Chicago, in, in the Chicago Police Department, you get a point
1: or two if you've been a victim of crime. So, Chicago's, so Chicago also, I think, has a flawed system. So the way you currently get into it on the Chicago heat list is the following variables. If you've been arrested for a violent crime, a narcotics crime, or a weapons crime, if you've been the victim of a violent crime or a shooting, your age at the last arrest, younger the age, higher the risk score, and kind of the trend line, are you aging out or is this sort of uh, happening over and over again? And the difficulty and the problem with those that cluster of uh, variables is that it includes arrest. And the one thing we know about arrests and policing is that arrests really are where police police. It's not actually where crime occurs because crime can occur lots of places where you're not actually arrested. Like we're not talking about convictions, we're not calling, talking about calls for service. We're calling about, talking about arrests. And if you have a city like Chicago, where you know the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division did a deep dive into that, did their full report and showed systemic, endemic, structural racism in Chicago Police Department, and you're basing your inputs on arrests. You're going to have flawed outputs, and that's a choice. You don't have to choose arrest. Some of the place-based predictive policing uh, technologies, the ones that are just focused on areas of crime, specifically don't use arrests because they know that using arrests would be flawed. So it's all just how you build it. How do you build this model? What are the inputs? And are you careful and cautious about the fact that you might be reifying the bias that we know exists in society through your algorithm? And then and speaking
0: on, to, uh, on place-based um, um, policing, Los Angeles does that. Um, where they, I guess, have areas that they that they look at and look at crime data. Talk about that.
1: So. L.A. was at the forefront of place-based predictive policing. They partnered with a company called PredPol a long time ago, or a long time in this this era, is about eight years ago, uh, where they basically took an algorithm that looked at whether a crime was essentially contagious. Certain kinds of crimes are almost viral in nature, burglary, car theft, theft from auto. Usually, there is uh, an uptick in that particular crime in the near location after a crime. So, if your house is burglarized, it's actually statistically more likely that houses in your neighborhood are going to get burglarized afterwards. Why? It might be the same group of burglars, honestly, who saw some vulnerability here that they wanted to come in. Uh, It might be the fact that there's something else going on in the environment that just allows there's no one around. It's, you know, everyone's at work and no one's around in in the neighborhood during work hour, whatever it is. Uh, And so they built an algorithm that sort of identified this reality uh, and have used it out. And so if you are in roll call at LAPD in certain jurisdictions, you literally get a map Like it's a Google map with little red boxes of the places where you are to patrol in your free time. Little 500 by 500 square foot boxes where you are to go and hang out to deter and protect whatever it is uh, at this moment when you have free time. The theory being if there is some vulnerability in this neighborhood and you put a cop car there. The burglar's not going to show up; there. he's going to go somewhere else, or he's not going to burglarize that day and that's the theory behind it that that's the theory,
0: but I could imagine that there would be people in some communities saying, hey, as a result of this, you're stigmatizing my neighborhood you're putting um the uh, the community at risk uh by targeting by targeting community, and it just it it just stigmatizes us it, it, and you're putting you're putting us at the mercy of a police officer who may or may not be having a bad day.
1: And, and not only is the officer may or may not having a bad day, but that officer is now being informed to be on the lookout for particular crime. So there you are. You're patrolling in your 500 by 500 square foot box looking because it's an area of auto theft. So in your mind as an officer, everyone in this box is probably a thief, right? Because the computer told you to be on the lookout at a particular time, particular location, for particular crime. And so suddenly you can just imagine how that distorts an officer's vision of the community. How does that not exacerbate profiling? I think it does for particular crimes. I think it does create a real concern that officers are only going to see individuals through the lens of this predictive tip. And there's no way for the officer to get underneath the data about why the computer predicted this area at this time for this crime. So they're going to always see it through this lens of... Uh, suspicion. And I think, to me, it distorts the Fourth Amendment in that case, where it distorts the reasonable suspicion standard of the Fourth Amendment, which means that you have to have a justification for stopping people on the the street for whatever you think. I think this gives police a ready-made you know, justification to stop someone. I thought they were a car thief because, hey, the computer told me if you didn't look at a car thief and he was walking next to a car. <laughs> right? I mean, right? You
0: just see right. how it will be distorting. I mean, I, I, I laugh at that because it seems so ridiculous. But we've seen many instances where that has actually been used and um, to great effect. So um, these these companies that you've you've mentioned, PredPol, Predpol there's another company that you've mentioned – uh, well, Palantir does Palantir sort of the, the, the uh, social network analysis with L.A. Right. And so these, these companies, I wanted to get you to talk about these companies that are now in the business of, I guess, mining this data, using this, selling this data, working with these police departments. Who are they? Where, where do they come from?
1: So PredPol is an interesting backstory. So PredPol was created by a anthropologist named Jeff Branaham. Jeff Branaham is a guy who began studying like hunter-gatherers in Mongolia and other kinds of things, recognizing that there were certain patterns in uh, cultures and crimes, or cultures, and then he sort of took that thinking with a couple other uh, uh, academics uh, to sort of apply an algorithm that comes from earthquake seismology uh, to this idea of crime. And so this group of academics suddenly became a company at a time where people were sort of investing in this idea of predictive policing. And they partnered with LAPD and they began this. And now they're in about, I think there's are 60 cities or something, they're using some form of uh, these technologies. Maybe not just PredPol, but one of these predictive policing companies. And they are still a startup. They're still pretty small, I think, in the business. Uh, and they are sort of pitching their wares to police departments uh, to say, look, you want your, every day you send your officers out to patrol. It has been relatively random. Like, where do you go? You just send them out, and wherever they go, they go. Why not be smarter about where you send them? We can show you where it's more likely to be. And that's the theory behind why it has sort of taken off in particular ways. Palantir is different, right? Palantir gets its start uh, through seed money with, like, the 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 CIA has this like venture capital arm where they sort of gave uh, money to begin, and and you know Palantir has been sort of connected with the intelligence community for a long period of time, uh, where they have actually been pretty instrumental in sort of doing network trafficking of of terrorism, trying to connect the dots across the globe. And I think they saw a parallel market. In policing, uh, taking the same kinds of technology but using it uh, to track individuals in uh, society, you know, as a Peter Thiel company, it has you know the sort of this aura of being, uh, you know, the dark arts, uh, and I'm not sure it always helps itself with its marketing because it sort of plays on that that theme. Um, but it's basically a connecting the dots technology of trying to link disparate pieces of information together to help investigators. So
0: we've talked about Chicago and its heat list, Los Angeles and its boxes of sort of predictive uh, policing. You mentioned New York now has a, a database. So New York- ga- I'm sorry, gang a gang database. They do. NYPD has their own gang database. Um, all of this... Takes me back to the, gosh, I can't believe it's 20 years ago, but the 1990s when Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, became mayor of New York. He hired Bill Bratton to be his police commissioner, and he started something called CompStat. And no one had ever heard of this before. It was a brand new concept. Talk about CompStat and how that
1: really is like the, the seed for what we have now. So Comstat was a seed of data-driven policing that began with this idea of collecting data about what police were doing, who was being stopped, who was being arrested, and actually having sort of a management system where commanders were responsible for the data, which meant that officers were responsible for upping their arrests and making sure that their conviction rates were high enough and became very data-centered. Interestingly enough, so Bratton leaves uh, New York and goes to L.A., to be the person who greenlights the first predictive policing test in LA. So he was in charge of the LAPD, after the Rampart scandals, um, to sort of change the face of policing in LA. And one of the ways of doing that is say, don't worry, we're moving past the old ugly history of Rampart, we have a new system, it's called predictive policing, that's what we're gonna do. Interestingly enough, after stop and frisk gets declared unconstitutional in New York City, guess who shows up back in New York is Bill Braddon again. As with, who literally says, stop and frisk is dead. We're going to do predictive policing, uh, precision pre- policing from now on. Then he something to the effect like, of, don't, wor- don't worry about it. We've got this, we've got this new thing. But, and that's why we're talking about it, right? Because the new thing is such a lure for police chiefs who have to answer the almost impossible question of, chief, what are you going to do about crime? Because the real answer to that, of course, are well, like better education, more economic opportunity, can I have some hope in my neighborhoods, the rest of it, right? You can't do that. But you can say, don't worry, I have a new black box technology that's going to change things. And we've seen that over and over and over again. We're seeing it in Baltimore right now in real time. Baltimore's had you know, corruption scandals, Freddie Gray protests, race you know, relations that are, are, are really troubling. And what do they do? They fire the police uh, chief and say, don't worry, we're hiring one of the architects of L.A. and Chicago's predictive police technologies to come here and help us out in Baltimore. And again, whether true or not, whether good or not, it's an answer. And every mayor wants that answer. Mm-hmm. Every chief needs that answer. And so we've seen this push to new technologies as providing that quote-unquote answer. And isn't the – I think you you have said this many times
0: before, that the the allure of this technology is quote-unquote objectivity, which – on its face, sounds like a good thing that police departments are looking for that objective technology that will actually help them do their jobs in a way that um, doesn't exacerbate larger tensions with the with the community they serve.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's an accident we're seeing this rise of big data policing after. America has finally woken up to the racial tensions in America, right? After people have been protesting, I mean, not that they haven't woken up before, but we've seen a heightened policing uh, concern, a heightened tension in certain communities about police-citizens' relationship. And the the lure of saying, look, we know human policing can be broken. We know bias exists. We know uh, we've gone south in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and Staten Island, and you you name where we've been uh, before. But don't worry, we're moving past that to something more objective. We're going to follow the data. This will be data-driven. And that echoes with something that we've seen in every other aspect of our culture, which is, we are all following the data. We're all moving towards sort of a data-driven systems, So it makes sense for police to be smart. Who doesn't want police to be smarter? Uh, so it taps into both a, a need to move to something that sounds more objective, even though we have to ask those questions of where does this underlying data come from, but also it taps into something we're seeing across the culture, which is everyone's trying to be smarter and figuring out, well, how many steps have I walked today? I have my Fitbit that suddenly we've always walked, right? We've always <laughs> been walking, and you knew if you walked a lot or a little. Suddenly by counting the steps, it's changed, right? But it hasn't. Right. It's the same thing with policing. Right. We've always had police on patrol and doing their things. Now we have a bit more information about them. You know, does it does it change or is it the fact that we can quantify it and datafy and call it something different that that really matters? Uh,
0: There are two things that that come to mind, disparate things as this conversation has gone on. One, how does this new world of big data policing impact sort of the militarization of the police that we saw that came to everyone's consciousness uh, as a result of of the protests in Ferguson?
1: So I think it is a parallel, right? So we see the technology that gets rolled out through our intelligence community and our armed forces uh, eventually make its way back to – domestic policing, local policing, right? And so, like, the obvious tanks in Ferguson and military-grade hardware were obvious, but we're seeing that in a digital format, right? We're seeing the same sort of social network analysis that was actually profiling, you know, terrorists, you know, in foreign countries now coming back to the U.S. to see if we can't use some of that same technology to predict who might be you know, gang members or, or whatever it will be. The same technology, I mean, one of the, the examples I talk about in the book is in Baltimore, there was this company called the Persistent Surveillance Systems Company. There was basically a Cessna plane filled with the cameras that got their start in Afghanistan and Iraq, literally cameras that could fly over a city and record it all. You were watching the entire city at one time, and they were listening to uh, the police radio runs. So you'd hear, you know, bank robbery fourth and elm and they could roll back the tape they called it like a TiVo equivalent of policing uh and they could watch you know the bank they could watch the people get out of their the bank into the the car and drive away and so they were there's a private company that was packaging this information and handing it over to baltimore police department you want to know your bank robbers here they are they ended up at their mom's house over here the only problem was, they hadn't told the city council or the mayor or anyone else that they were doing this, and this pilot project was a surveillance system that was literally recording all of It was actually West Baltimore, the two places they, 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 uh, they piloted it, Compton, California, and West Baltimore. Uh, okay. Yeah. Talk about
0: profiling. <laughs> right.
1: So, but, but it was an incredibly powerful uh, investigative tool, right? Because you could watch everything you wanted to see. And it got its start, again, using the same technologies that we've developed overseas through our military capacity. And we're going to see that more and more because the same companies that are building those capacities for our military and our intelligence community see other markets in local policing, especially if the federal government wants to spend some money and uh, pilot these. I, I mean, what you just talked about um, just goes
0: to show how. Technology is like light years ahead of where our laws are and even where our own public conversation is. The other thing that came to mind as we were as this conversation has gone on in terms of this heat list uh, thing that's being used in Chicago, I started thinking about, well, wait a minute. What about the person who was arrested, lives in a dodgy, so-called dodgy neighborhood, but served served their time? And is now, you know, in the free and clear in our system of government, once you serve your time, you, aren't you supposed to be like you've done you've paid your debt to society. And yet because of this heat list, you, you're not really you're not really free, you've not really served your time or paid your debt to society, have you?
1: Not only are you not free, but you're literally marked such that this threat score—we are literally—in Chicago right now, we're giving people, human beings, threat scores, 1 to 500 plus, so that when you get, like, pulled over, this person who's done their time there, there's literally a score on the dashboard computer. So the police officer now is like, oh, you're a 482 or whatever it would be. And you can imagine how that number, that high threat score, is going to impact how that officer treats this human being— no matter where they're going, they're going to church, they're going to pick up their daughter, whatever it is, or they're gonna commit a crime, it doesn't matter. Suddenly the officer's gonna see them by this numerical score. A numerical score we don't even know is accurate because it's based on an algorithm that's still secret and based on variables that there's no no one's ever shown that these actually show you're more of a threat or not. So our datafying of threats is changing the relationship between police and individuals. And again, to give some credit to the the police officer, you're an officer, you see this threat, threat score, what are you supposed to do? I mean, right? Someone gave you this information. It's not, you're not wrong to use it. Maybe they're more of a threat, but maybe they're more of a victim you don't even know. But you also, you know, without, it's not irrational to use that information, and yet that information is impacting these relationships and our relationships between communities and police. So then what about discretion? I mean, one of the questions
0: that I've been asking ever ever since Ferguson is, where is the discretion of the police officer? Maybe I've got this utopian view of police, but I always thought that they were trained to de-escalate situations to because they are so highly trained that they know how to use their discretion to determine the best course of action but we've seen time and time again that there is a, a huge lack of discretion and so with this with this technology uh, and the way the the way we've been talking about it I don't know if this actual if I should even trust all of this information particularly this heat this threat score stuff in the hands of police
1: officers? Well, I think that there is, again, a trust issue that we should be, I mean, I think we should look at how officers are trained, whether we could do it better, whether we should emphasize more of the de-escalation uh, training that is going on. I think that's all true. I think what's interesting about the, the quantification of risk in this case is that it really creates a, a, a twofold path, right? So individuals who are uh, constantly connected to the criminal justice system through arrests or contacts of friends or victimization or whatever are going to be in one li- uh, one group with a higher threat score. But actually, other people are not going to be, right? So you can imagine that there are people who would ordinarily be profiled because of their race or age or, you know, neighborhood they're in that when the threat swell comes up, they're like, you're a two. Well, okay, we can treat you differently, right? And I've, when I've given these talks about these books, I've actually had some interesting conversations about people saying, you know, I would and usually from like African American civil rights leaders who said, "You know, I would have loved to have this threat score because it means I wouldn't have been profiled as an African American man. I would have been, I would have been seen as who I am—that someone who has mm-hmm. been, you know, doing right all the way through my life. You know, I'm a professor, a law professor, and they would see that as opposed to seeing me as a threat." And so, what's interesting is that it creates this twofold uh, society of people who are, you know, under the sort of control surveillance of police and people who are not. And by giving literal threat scores that are going to determine how you treat someone, you might actually be able to keep some people who would otherwise be profiled not to be profiled, not to be pulled over. And other people um, will get more uh, surveillance and more social control. Wait, not to be pulled over? So you can imagine. So there you are. Two people are pulled over. One person has a 482 high threat score. One person has a 2. The officer, as they approach a person with a 2 who's not a threat, He's going to treat them differently. You're going to see there's no reason in our system. Okay,
0: So that's where I was confused. OK, so they both have been pulled over. It's not that you're dr- driving along and the, and the cop runs
1: your plates and says, "Ah, there's, that person's a two. I'll just leave them alone. You could do that. That's what's interesting. You also can do that because the same information that you would run the plates for to get the threat score is there. Before you stop. You can. I'm not saying they're doing that, but you could easily do that. But can they do that legally?
0: If a police officer – this is just actually a legal question I've always wondered since you're a law professor. This is good. If I'm driving down the road and there's a police officer behind me and they don't end up doing anything, can they, while they're riding behind me, plug in my license plate number just just
1: to see who is this guy? I believe they can unless there's an internal regulation telling them they can't. There's certainly no – federal legislation, state legislation, local legislation. There may be police legislations that or police regulations that want to discourage that uh, for fear that people, that officers will just be curious or, you know, right. doing not, the wrong thing. But, uh, you know. It's not a Fourth Amendment violation. It's definitely not. And, okay. and, and you have, you know, we have automated license plate readers in many cities right now that are recording where your car is at all every time it passes one of these things. And they're literally getting millions of hits a day to figure out where people are. And what's interesting about that is that, over time, in the aggregation, you can figure out where you go, what are your patterns, and and what you're doing. And there's no concern, no constitutional concern, about that in any way. Hmm. Uh, The the automated light slide readers are also such that, as they drive past a car and they do these automated hits. They, if there's, like, a problem with that car, like there's a warrant out for the driver of that car, there'll be an automatic alert. So the officer, just driving past, can say, oh, this car has an alert, and they'll pull you over because there's something wrong uh, or something going on underneath that. And that's all automatic. That's not the officer even doing it. They're not even typing it in. Mm-hmm. It's happening in this automated format. Wow. One of the things that you say is
0: that with all of this data um, that the police are using for one purpose, couldn't this technology be used? For different purposes, different purposes that would actually benefit better benefit communities.
1: Well, so in the book, I talk about that. You know, what we've done is develop a risk identification. Uh, technology. We can identify their are areas that might be more likely to have a crime or individuals who might be more at risk for a crime. And so one remedy for that could be we could put a cop car in the red box where it's been predicted to be a crime, or we could knock on the door of a young man who is a, a high score on the heat list. Um, but those are policing remedies, and they don't have to have policing remedies. You know, if there's a pr- problem with that neighborhood, we could actually you know, build a uh, you know a park where that high crime area is. We could um, build a a way of improving that neighborhood. If that individual ha- is more at risk, maybe instead of instead of sending a police officer to that door, you send an employer. You send a teacher. Say, come back to school and let's get back your education. Right? There are different ways. Like right now, we've sort of built the predictive policing system to uh, have our only remedy being policing. But it doesn't have to be that way. I sort of joke, like, the problem with predictive policing is the policing part, right? The idea of identifying risk of neighborhoods or individuals is fine, but the remedy could be community-wide. It can be social. It can be government-wide. We can send social service to the door. We don't have to send police. And that's some of the mistake, I think, of our, our mentality on this.
0: Any localities, any municipalities thinking of this in the way that you are right now?
1: You know, not in the, you know, there have been glimmers of hope. Uh, New Orleans, when they began uh, their NOLA for Life program, uh, which was a program that was part predictive policing of person-based predictive policing, but also part kind of a holistic program to try to intervene in the lives of the young men who were going to be on this list, uh, actually put some money, you know, Mayor Land- Landra at the time put some money behind these programs. Uh, and initially there was a great you know, decrease in uh, the number of shootings in New Orleans. Unfortunately, after funding changed, the, the, the shootings have gone up again. Uh, but you can see that, that they don't have to uh, we don't have to have a policing remedy we don't just to solve this with, with policing but the identification of places where there might be crime we can fix that up people we can change the, their, those life patterns uh, to improve that and again it doesn't have to be a policing uh, remedy so uh, last
0: question uh, and that is once people have read your book what do you what do you hope is the big lesson that they take away from it
1: so one of the interesting realities is all the things we've talked about are sort of happening on a local level, right? You know What's happening in New York is not happening in LA. What's happening in LA is not happening in DC, or Miami, or Seattle. But there is a national story and a national concern that we need to be paying attention to now, because each one of these technologies is going to show up in other places. And my hope is that local communities will start stepping up to say, we should have some say in these uh, technologies. We've seen examples in Seattle and in Oakland and Berkeley and outside uh, Boston, where local communities have said, before you adopt a new surveillance technology, before you use tax dollar monies to to use this new surveillance technology, you have to go through a democratic process. You have to go through a city council so we can have a say in it. so that you, we can force you, the, the government, to actually come up with policies and procedures beforehand. And I hope the takeaway will be that this technology is here. It's coming, it's coming faster than we could ever imagine. And that as citizens, we need to start engaging and educating ourselves so that we can respond and challenge this through democratic means to say, maybe we're okay with these kinds of technologies, but not this. Maybe these inputs are flawed and we should think twice before we adopt them. And have that conversation now before it's too late. And you say that this should be done through annual surveillance summits. In the book, I propose that we should at least have one moment every year of accountability, where the chief of police and the mayor have to gather and say, "Look, this is what we're doing and why. We can justify it. We can tell you the safety precautions we've put in, uh, so we're not, you know, chilling free speech, chilling association. We're not just targeting poor people of color. Um, this is what we've done to to deal with your concerns." And this is why we think we're right. And then we can have a debate about it, right? Right now, what happens is things like the persistent surveillance system, which we didn't know about until Bloomberg News put it on the front page of their, their magazine. That was the first time anyone had heard about it, right? We keep developing these technologies in secret through procurement and, and different kinds of secrecies, and they blow up in the news, uh, and we don't get a good conversation. And we should do it at the front end. We should have front-end accountability on all of the through-democratic uh, means. Andrew Ferguson, law professor at the
0: University of the District of Columbia and author of The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race and the Future of Law Enforcement. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
1: If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post.